this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi, my name is Kelly McFall, and I'm the host of New Books and Genocide Studies. A few weeks ago, I talked with Irvin Staub about his new book, Overcoming Evil. After that conversation, as I usually do, I emailed Irvin to say thanks for his time. In an email discussion that followed, Irvin and I realized there was more to say about his book than we had managed to do in the first interview. As a result, we taped a 15-minute or so follow-up. In this second part of the interview, we talk specifically about the next steps that emerge from Irvin's research and that are outlined in his book. That second conversation will follow immediately after the interview itself. I know that many of you have broken the code on when interviews are about to conclude and perhaps have developed the habit of stopping or deleting the interview before it's quite done. If that's you, I encourage you not to do so today, but instead to stay on the line and listen to Irvin's conclusion. So that's it for this brief, brief preface. Now, on to the interview itself. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to say that we have Irvin Staub on the show. Irvin, founding director of the Center for Peace and Violence Studies at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, Irvin has been active in studying genocide and mass violence almost since the field began. And today we'll be talking about his book, Overcoming Evil, Genocide, Violent Conflict, and Terrorism. I can imagine introducing this book as Irvin's attempt at the end of a long and distinguished career studying mass violence to summarize for us everything he has learned in the past decades. But I don't actually think I'll do that because that kind of formulation suggests that Irvin is done. And I doubt that's true. But I will say that the book distills a remarkable amount of research into the causes of mass violence and a remarkable amount of research and practical experience and turns it into practical suggestions about how we can try to prevent such violence in the future. It's a wonderful book, and it's been honored at least a couple times. Uh, The book has been awarded the Alexander George Book Award by the International Society for Political Psychology for the best book in political psychology for that year. And it's been honored by the International Division of the American Psychology Association for significant and outstanding contributions, as Staub has, to psychology as a global discipline. So I think that we can anticipate a rich and thought-provoking interview I'm thrilled to have a chance to discuss the book with Irvin. So with that, Irvin, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to our conversation. So, Irvin, we usually start this, and I'd like to do that now, by asking you to, to just to tell us a little bit about yourself. How did, what's your background? How did you get interested in studying violence, and how did you end up as an academic? Well, uh you know, as a young child, six years old, I survived the Holocaust in Hungary. And one of the people who was very important for me in my life was a woman who worked for my family and who at that time 
was was doing everything that she could possibly do to help us. She was a Christian woman who came with us, who who hid me and my sister for a while, uh, who tried to help us later on with food and other things, and who remained part of my life uh, for as long as I stayed in Hungary. I escaped from there in 1956 after the revolution there. Hmm. So with Nazism, with communism, with somebody being so helpful, with Raul Wallenberg, who was also very important to save our lives, I had these strong influences. And when I came to the U.S., and then I got a, 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 a PhD at Stanford, and then I started to, actually, while I was at Stanford, I was a visiting professor at Perry London, who was the first person who tried to study rescuers, people who mm. had endangered their lives to save the lives of persecuted people, Jews in particular, but also others. And when I started to work at Harvard, uh, my first job as an assistant professor, I began to study what leads people to share with others, what leads children to be sharing, what leads children to be helpful, what leads adults to be helpful. And when you study that, you also study people who are not helpful. And I have done this kind of research on helping behavior and caring and altruism for a good number of years. And I wrote several books about that. And then I was kind of ready to begin to ask, what leads people to harm others? Hmm. What leads people to harm others in extreme ways, as in genocide, as in mass killing, as in intense group violence? And I started to to do that kind of work in 1979. And it led, 10 years later, to publish my first book on this topic, The Roots of Evil, The Origins of Genocide and Other Group Violence. Um, and I continued to work to understand what leads people and groups to engage in extreme violence. But I did that work always because I wanted to know how by understanding origins, we may be able to understand how to prevent violence. Mm. And so more and more, I started to work on the prevention of violence between groups. Uh, and as part of that, I begin to engage in the world in various applied matters, trying to actually prevent violence. Uh, one of them was, you know, some of this was here in the United States. Uh, working with teachers in schools, how to create clearing classrooms that promotes helping. Working with police in California after the Rodney King incident to develop a training program that makes it less likely that police engage in violence, unnecessary violence. And at some point, I went to Rwanda to work on healing and reconciliation between groups there. And we did, we developed trainings and workshops, and then we moved on to educational radio programs, and these expanded also to Burundi and the Congo. So really, a core principle, I believe, in people becoming increasingly violent is what I call learning by doing. As people engage in certain kinds of actions, they change, their thinking changes, and they move further in that direction. And the same thing is also in the positive direction. As people help others, they can see the positive effects, and they change, and they can become more helpful. And I would say that this was also true in my life, 
that as I engaged in a certain kind of work, that changed me and moved me further in engaging in that kind of work in a deeper way. That's a fascinating story. Um, and it, well, not culminated, I guess, but, but has brought you to this point where, you, where you've written this book, Overcoming Evil. What, what, what did you have in mind with this book? Well, I uh, had in mind several things. First of all, I wanted to expand a little bit the understanding of the origins of genocide that I described in The Roots of Evil. Mm -hmm. And in that book, I applied this understanding to four instances, genocide and mass killing. The Holocaust, the genocide of the Armenians, the so-called auto-genocide, or I call it that way, in Cambodia, mm -hmm. and the disappearances, what constituted mass killing in Argentina. I wanted to add a little bit to the knowledge base. For example, in describing the influences leading to violence by groups, I talked about the social conditions such as economic deterioration, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. such as um, a very great political chaos and disorganization and some others. And I talked about the cultural characteristics that contribute, such as a history of devaluation of some group and strong respect for authority and prior violence between groups and some others. Um, I also talked some about leaders. Um, I talked about learning by doing and how groups change. And when they harm others, they devalue the other more and they over time exclude them from the moral universe, not seeing them as human beings to whom moral values apply. Well, I wanted to expand this just a little bit. For example, one of the influences that I later came to see as important was the prior victimization or woundedness of suffering of a group of people mm -hmm. who now see the world as dangerous, who feel vulnerable, and when there is new threat to them because of life conditions, because of group conflict, that's another source, by the way, another original instigator, a conflict between groups that cannot be resolved and becomes more intractable and violent over time. So when there are these conditions existed in the past and a group is psychologically wounded, they feel vulnerable, they see the world as dangerous, and when there is new conflict or new threat to them, they unfortunately more easily use violence in response to that, even when that is not necessary. Mm -hmm. So they become perpetrators. So I wanted to add that. I wanted to expand a little bit my discussion of how group conflict can deteriorate and lead to persistent and increasing violence. I wanted to expand a little bit my discussion of leaders. In the original book, The Roots of Evil, I talked about leaders, but I focused a lot on followers because the social conditions that I described or the group conflict lead a group of people to look for solutions and to at least have their psychological need 
for identity, for connection, for a worldview that addresses their experience, to, for those things to be, to be fulfilled. So I talk about followers and how the readiness of followers makes it possible for destructive leaders to emerge. But uh, I wanted to emphasize the role of leaders more because mm. it's true that followers are crucial and their readiness is crucial, but leaders are also really crucial. And we could see examples of that when under conditions that there would be readiness for violence when there is a positive leader that is not going to happen. And, you know, Nelson Mandela, of course, is an outstanding example of this. So mm -hmm. I wanted to expand the conception, and then I wanted to also expand it in terms of the situations that I apply it to. So I wrote in this book about the genocide in Rwanda and what gave rise to violence there. I wrote about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and why there is this persistent conflict and violence there. Uh, and I also extended it to terrorism for two reasons. One of them is that um, some of the conditions and influences that lead to terrorist violence are similar. In genocide, it's the dominant group often that becomes the perpetrator against a minority. Mm -hmm. In terrorism, it's the people often who feel dep repressed, deprived, unfairly treated, unjustly treated, or who sympathize with people whom they think are unjustly treated are the ones who begin to engage in violence. And so I wanted to show some of these connections, and also because terrorism was so virulently present at the time when I was writing the book. I wanted to include that. I also wanted to include it because I had some relatively direct experiences. By that, I don't mean that I became a terrorist, but I mean <laughs> that I was invited to work with attorneys and work with various other segments of people uh, who worked with terrorists and to study and try to understand and make suggestions for de-radicalization de de and various other things. So this book became all of these things, but the second part of the book, moving from origins, focused on prevention and focused on reconciliation. And the two are very much connected because after violence, when it stops, for whatever reason it stops, whether it is that one side defeated the other, or there is a peace agreement, or something else, without reconciliation, without moving towards mutual acceptance between two parties who have been violent in relation to each other, it's very likely that violence will restart. There will be new violence. So reconciliation is in a way of preventing new violence. It also improves people's lives who don't live in a situation where there is constant danger to them. Uh, so there is another thing about reconciliation, and that is the concept is usually used 
to describe something that can happen after violence. Mm. But the fact is that when there is hostility and anger and some persecution and discrimination and other things like that within groups, then reconciliation can help very great violence in the first place. So there is an overlap between reconciliation and prevention. And so I was talking in the second part of the book both about how we might be able to prevent these kinds of violence and how we might have groups to reconcile. There's a lot to talk about there, of course, and, and we have a limited amount of time. Uh, and I'd like to spend most of our time talking about the second half of the book. But but let me ask you just really quickly a couple quick questions about the first half. Um, one of which uh, stems from your earlier work, and you expand on it here. I, I wonder if you'd talk just a little bit, you talk about the deva- devaluing people or the devaluation of humans, um, what other people have called dehumanization. Could you explain what this is and, and, and what role it plays in, 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 in the emergence of mass violence? Well, by itself alone, it does not account for mass violence. Mm-hmm. but it is a central element and the central contributors to it. Uh, it's very unlikely that when a group, if a group sees another group in a positive light, these are good human beings, worthwhile, diligent, intelligent, thoughtful, moral, can you imagine them wanting to kill all the members of that group, mm. or even many of them, not likely. So, devaluation comes out of human tendencies to differentiate between us and them. And this is even located in the way we categorize things. You know, we categorize tall and short, blue and red, uh, people with money and people without money, and so on. And we also categorize people as us, people who belong to me, to my group, who are connected to me, and them, people who are outside of that domain that we call us. And when these people outside of the domain, these people outside that domain are easily come to be seen in a negative light. Um, And In many societies, there are these divisions. So over time, historically, some groups come to be devalued. The poor may be seen as lazy, uh, not intelligent, not capable. Uh, Some groups may come to be seen because of certain differences in an even more negative light, as morally bad, as exploiters of other people. And some groups may be seen as a threat to us, perhaps because of past conflicts. And in difficult times, they are scapegoated. And often in difficult times, a group comes together and they create a vision for a better future for themselves. This vision could be racial superiority, That was one of the elements of the Nazi ideology. Uh, Or just the opposite. It could be total social equality. As the Cambodian communists, the Khmer Rouge, Mm -hmm. imagined the society that they wanted to create. 
However, unfortunately, some group, often a historically devalued group, or a group that has been in opposition, is often identified as standing in the way of creating this better world. And so this group then becomes the, becomes the target. So the most, for, for, the, for, the, for the Germans, for the Nazis, the Jews were the primary target, but it wasn't only the Jews. It was anybody whom they saw as racially inferior. So their allies in the war, the Japan, Japanese, they also saw as racially inferior. But for a time, it was convenient to be allied with them. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know. How, I don't know if this answers your question. If not, maybe you could re-ask. No, it. that's no, that's wonderful. And, and and in some ways, what I'm what I'm thinking about, and you did a a really nice job of summarizing many of the ideas that that you lay out in the first half of that is the intersection between. Uh, the the attitudes and behaviors that stem from what make us human and thus are common across cultures or at least reasonably common across cultures and the way in which context matters and i'm struck by your discussion of difficult life decisions or, or sorry difficult life conditions and your stress on the possibility that unjust or the role that unjust economic and social systems play in the way in which those particulars of specific societies and times and groups interact with those broader um, proclivities or templates that human being human puts on us. Exactly. You know, it's worth saying that genocide is not something that outside the human realm. Obviously Mm. not, because it happens often enough, tragically. It is the tragic, extreme, unchecked outcome of normal human psychological and social processes. And it's therefore important to understand it so that we can prevent it. You know, sometimes people have referred to genocide as incomprehensible evil. Well, no, that's giving up in the face of something that we must understand. So, so can I ask you then? The, the title is, in fact, "Overcoming Evil." What What do you mean then by evil? By evil, I mean extreme human destructiveness mm-hmm. that is not defensive in nature, necessary in order to protect oneself and one's group, and it is not in any way commensurate with provocation. So, by that definition. Genocide is obviously evil, but there can be much lesser behavior that when it adds up together, one might consider extreme human destructiveness, not justified by provocation and not defensive. For example, parents who systematically badly treat emotionally and physically a child which is terribly destructive to this child, possibly physically, but certainly emotionally. And this person then struggles all, this child, as this child grows up, struggles all in his or her life with these destructive early experiences. 
And so this, what I mean by evil, has these characteristics. Highly, extremely destructive, not in response to provocation, not commensurate with anything that the target of that destructive action has done. Hmm. So what is then the relationship? This is the last question that I'd like to ask anyway before we turn our attention to prevention. What's the relationship between the broad kind of experiences that you talk a lot about, again, the difficult life conditions and so on, and the ideas that drive genocide? How How much weight do you place on the various kinds of ideology that genocide does espouse? Uh, quite a lot. You know, for us human beings, ideas are very powerful. <laughs> and ideas can unite a group and bring a group together. And then members of these groups support each other and move each other further along, along what I have called a continuum of destruction along this evolution that I talked about, that results from learning by doing from our own actions that change us. But ideas come in and move us along. In fact, you know, one of the things that people have described about small terrorist groups is that its members trying to gain influence in the group do so by introducing more extreme ideas. Mm -hmm. And so... That similar things can happen in genocidal processes because among leaders there can be a similar process of people vying for influence, maybe vying also to get the approval of somebody who is currently the primary leader, and they bring forward more extreme ideas. So yes, there are important emotional processes of negative view and negative feelings towards others, uh, which can be further generated in a group by the descriptions to other, by propaganda, by, again, the way you treat the other, and then you see the other in an even more negative light, because look at them. I mean, that was one of the things in the death camps, that the guards were treating the inmates terribly, more than even required by the conditions, by the orders to kill anybody who cannot work anymore. Well, why were they treating it them that way? The, the man in charge of Treblinka, when he was asked this question, said it was partly to make it possible for them to do the work that they were doing. Killing people so badly and then seeing them mm-hmm really in such bad, terrible conditions, not quite like human beings usually made it possible to devalue them to such an extent that they could be treated even even worse. So, and, and full disclosure, I'm a historian, and as I tell my students, that means, among other things, that I am kind of drenched in particularities. Um, and so, if, and, and this is partly a transition to this question of, of prevention. If if one of the purposes, and, and as you suggested, at least for you, it's a really important part of your purpose of studying these kind of events is is to uncover best practices. I guess I'll use that term for for prevention. 
what when you study genocides, how important is it to know the particular or to study the particularities of the individual genocides as opposed to to trying to discover commonalities and generalities? Are the particulars of individual, I'm sorry, what? Individual persons or individual conditions? Uh, of individual, so individual case studies. So, so as a historian, I tend to work from the case, from individual cases outward. I tend to think of social scientists as, as using case studies to support theory building or to support the creation of generalities. Is, is that what you see yourself doing? Uh, what I see myself doing as creating general principles, both of prevention and of, both of origins and prevention. But these general principles have to apply to the specifics of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You need to, I, for example, when I get a call from somebody in the media, tend to be reluctant to say much about a situation that I know very little about. Because in order to say something thoughtful, you have to study the particular circumstances, the history of that group, the culture of that group, the prior relations between the groups involved, the subgroups involved, uh, the potential perpetrators and the potential targets, or the mutual perpetrators in violent conflict situations. And so both, I think, are very important. I mean, why would you want to go into a situation when you don't understand anything about how these things come about and just study that situation? And why would you want to apply general principles without knowing what are the particulars of a situation? So you really need both. Well, well, let's use that to jump off then with, with prevention. And you talk about the difference between early prevention and late prevention. Can you explain by, what you mean by these two terms? Well, you know, at some point, things have evolved so far that actually genocide is already in progress. Mm-hmm. When genocide is already in progress, uh, it's in almost impossible to do anything other than getting involved using force to stop it. Now, there could be some last-minute extreme diplomatic efforts. Very powerful and important people, leaders of powerful countries, descending on the place and engaging with the leaders of perpetrators and telling them about all the really bad consequences that are going to come to them if they don't stop it immediately and doing this in no uncertain terms in a credible way. But how often does that happen? It should. Shouldn't that be a first step? But if that doesn't happen so that it doesn't stop right away, then the only other way is to engage militarily and stop them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what I mean by late prevention. And that's quite different from understanding the potential influences, understanding the influences that are present, and engaging early enough that there can be economic, social, and psychological influences at work to try to stop an ongoing process, an ongoing process of increasing devaluation, of evaluation, of evolution, of passivity. 
you know, one of the other things that I have not mentioned that is very important to the evolution that I am talking about is the passivity of bystanders. Mm-hmm. And I talk about two kinds of bystanders, what I call internal bystanders, members of a population who are themselves neither victims nor perpetrators, but have an opportunity to see what's going on. And they tend to remain passive, and when they remain passive, the perpetrators tend to interpret this as a very least as acceptance. And often they are more than passive, often they are complicit. Like, you know, in Germany, uh, good Germans stopped having relations with Jews, stopped buying things in Jewish businesses, uh, even divorced their husbands or wives, many of them, in response to government pressure and influence. That's a kind of complicity. But external bystanders also often remain passive, and they also are often actually complicit also. And again, in the Holocaust, uh, many U.S. corporations continue to do business all through the 1930s. And I could give you many other examples of complicity. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. it's not only then, it's also in other genocides. So what I call active bystandership is crucial. And active bystandership is often very difficult for people inside the country when the country is also dictatorial and repressive and significant violence could follow. Even then, it is possible, but people often don't do it. But the external bystanders could. They can take action. And they also can activate internal parties. When external parties do things, internal parties get encouraged and emboldened, and they are also more likely to do things. So it is these external parties, nations, organizations, even individuals, who can make a difference. So so how do you make active bystanders? Well, there are a whole variety of ways. Actually, you were saying earlier that, well, maybe I am still remaining active, and yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have a new book coming out called The Roots of Goodness and Resistance to Evil, Mm. with a subtitle, Inclusive Caring, Moral Courage, Altruism Born of Suffering, Active Bystandership, and Heroism. And Mm. one of the things that I talk there is about raising children in a way that they become inclusively caring and morally courageous. But that's a long-term project. Mm-hmm. If something happens now in the world, we cannot wait for children to be raised that way. And I think that really there has to be influence from many sources at decision makers. So, for example, President Obama established an atrocity prevention board in, I believe, 2013. Mm -hmm. This atrocity prevention board, as far as I know, has done very little. (laughs) I heard that talk about a member of this board some time ago, and I engaged also with this person, and he talked a lot about Syria at that time. Well, Syria is very important and very challenging and very difficult. But it is such a complex situation, there is no clear way to engage in prevention. I'm not saying that one shouldn't, but there are other situations like the Sudan, where it's pretty clear that the government is doing all kinds of bad things to people in a number of regions. 
in Darfur, in the Blue Nile region, and so on. And so there can be important engagement there, highlighting at first focus, focusing on what is happening there. Even that's not happening. When was the last time that you read an article in the United States newspapers about Sudan? Mm-hmm. So um, one thing is to at first focus on that situation. Uh, when it is possible, uh, another thing that can be done, which is more difficult to create, and it has to be earlier along the way, is to bring parties together from the two sides for various things. Now, one of the things can be just informational and trying to help them understand how violence comes about. Uh, We did this as part of reconciliation in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. We did trainings and workshops for all kinds of groups, uh, including uh, uh, members of local organizations that worked with groups in the community, including the media, including national leaders, and we talked to them about the origins of violence and the impact of violence on people. And that was the first workshop we did, and later on we introduced also ways that one might go about to prevent violence and reconciliation. And just talking about the origins of violence to facilitators who work with groups in the community and the impact of violence, uh, when we evaluated the effects of this, and we evaluated it not only on the people who participated in our workshop, but some of these people went to work with newly created community groups to try to communicate the same kind of thing. And then we evaluated the people in these newly created community groups. And we found that Hutus and Tutsis had a more positive orientation to each other, that they had lower trauma symptoms, that they expressed something that we called conditional forgiveness. This was in 1999. Hmm. To ask people to forgive each other uh, five years after the genocide, seemed unreasonable. What we asked them, what are the conditions under which you think you would forgive the other group? And they expressed this conditional forgiveness. And all this happened much more in these groups than in so-called control groups Hmm. that were led by people we didn't train or didn't have any kind of training. So just understanding the origins of violence, it tells the people who have suffered First of all, that you are not guilty for what was done to the, to you. Uh, that's very important. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it also tells them implicitly that the people who have done these terrible things are not just simply evil, which is how they see them. They must have been evil. But mm-hmm. they have gotten involved in normal human processes that had these tragic, terrible ends. And they are responsible for what they have done. But if they are not evil, maybe they can also change. And, you know, then in later 
seminars with national leaders and so on, we also introduced avenues to prevention. And one of the things that we did with national leaders was to have them, after we talked about the origins and prevention of violence, in small groups to talk about policies and practices that they just introduced or were about to introduce in the country. And evaluate in terms of the information that they received, to what extent they think these policies and practices will make hostility and violence worse, or hostility at least worse, and to what extent it is going to make it better, reduce hostility. Uh, so people can be engaged in these processes. Now, we did one unfortunate thing in Rwanda, and that was everybody wanted us to expand the reach of our work mm. from small groups. So we shifted to educational radio programs. Mm -hmm. and we invited um, a, a Dutch producer to work with us. We used the same approach for the content, the educational content. There is a radio drama there called Busekawea, New Down, that started in, 19, uh, in 2004, and it is still going strong, the same story and educational radio dramas and other programs were also in, introduced in Burundi and the Congo. But because of our human and financial resources at that time, we did not continue to work with leaders. Mm. And you have to do a persistent, relatively extended work in order to create real profound change. Uh, that's something that might be useful for others to understand. But so these are some avenues to prevention. Then if you can create processes of healing in a group, whether it's after genocide or before genocide from historical traumas, that can help. Uh, you know, one of the ways that people engage with the past is usually through commemorations. But commemorations tend to focus on the wounds and remind people of their injuries. And I believe that it would make an important difference to add elements to, the com to, to commemorations that also point to a more positive future. Mm -hmm. For instance? Hello? Yep, for instance? Oh, for instance, what kind of more positive future? Yeah. Well, for example, let's take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. um, what could be a vision, a positive vision for the future there? What could be this constructive vision that you know, I have referenced earlier? Well, one of them could be an economic community that involves the two parties, but also extends in the region so that it contributes to peace not only between the two of them, but also in the region. I mean, that could, be, that could be one kind of vision. And other could be, for example, in Rwanda, include in commemorations the stories of people who attempted to save lives, of mm. Hutus who attempted to save lives. Uh, if you include these stories... That tells the Tutsis that 
not all Hutus were hostile and perpetrators, that some endangered themselves and some lost their lives as they tried to save Tutsis. So this may have to change from a negative orientation to the whole group to a more nuanced kind of orientation to the other group. It also says something important to, 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 to Hutus. It says to them that Tutsis, who are now in charge, and they would be the people who designed these commemorations, that these Tutsis recognize differences among Hutus, and they don't, in a blanket way, make everybody into a genocidaire, but they see that some Hutus were ready to sacrifice themselves and presumably would be ready to work to create a better future for everyone. So, so a couple questions then come to mind from from that, and and one is, and it's implied in in what you said about shifting from leader training to to radio broadcast. How do we find the resources to do this? Well, um, in this case, you know, our work in going to that and doing these workshops was first supported by the Templeton Foundation. Mm-hmm. Then it was supported to a smaller extent by the U.S. Institute of Peace. Then it was supported by USAID, um, USAID for International Development. Mm -hmm. And there were very small contributions from a couple of private donors. Uh, The work of the radio programs, first, our work on it in developing this was first supported by these grants that I just mentioned, especially the USAID grant and the USIP, United States Institute of Peace grant. Mm -hmm. And then it was produced, it was supported by the state of Holland, by the Netherlands, Mm. government of the Netherlands, and by Belgium. Also, to a smaller extent, by Sweden, the Swedish, Swedish Foundation, and a little bit by the European Union. So there are interested parties out there that do want to contribute to peace, Mm -hmm. that do want to make a difference in the world. Unfortunately, you know, politicians don't seem to be sufficiently involved in creating (laughs) what is necessary for that. Yeah, I mean, this is a sad truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Of course, you know, indirectly they are involved because USAID and the United States Institute for Peace could make some contribution. And in these countries, you know, the, the support from Holland came for two reasons. One of them is that the person who is producing these programs is Dutch, well, lives mm-hmm. in Holland. Mm-hmm. He is not Dutch by birth. Uh, and the first secretary of the uh, of 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 the Netherlands in Rwanda got engaged and interested in our work, and he was helpful to get his embassy then to work with the government and to support the programs. Belgium, I think, was interested because they had some feeling of guilt about what happened in Rwanda. Belgians were the colonizers. The the people in charge of Rwanda from 1916 until 1962, and they introduced a racist ideology and practices. They elevated the Tutsis over the Hutus in order to govern in their, ha- in their behalf, 
which is unfortunately something that colonial powers often do, and their practices and policies contributed significantly to the increasing hostility between Tutsis and Hutus. Uh, so there was enough guilt there uh, that I think that that was something that led to the contribution. But, you know, the truth of it is, if you look at, if I can deviate a little bit, after mm-hmm. all, I write about terrorism, I write about both <laughs> Al-Qaeda and Palestinian terrorism uh, in this book. And if I can move off from that a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. we have contributed enough to the turmoil in the Middle East that gave rise to a lot of terrorism that our government could well find it in our conscience to establish programs to try to address uh, what has been happening there in a constructive way, in a positive way, not in a military way, but in a social and psychological way. And and the follow-up then to that is... um, one of the the points you make about early intervention is the challenge of proving that it's successful because it's of the old dog barking or not barking in the night issue. If you actually, if, if early intervention actually works, then you don't have the violence that would prove it was necessary. So how do you mobilize support for intervening at a stage that's early enough that that kind of violence hasn't yet happened? Yeah. Well, that's a good point. As, I, as you mentioned, I discuss this in the book. And I, I mean, this is true. Uh, politicians have difficulty engaging with things that may not show results. But the fact is that if we do an evaluation of the conditions in that society, if we start with evaluating that society along the dimensions that I discussed, you know, uh, evaluation of the other, discrimination, the passivity of the population, uh, lack of pluralism, various other things. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then we engage in interventions and we do evaluation later on. We may be able to show improvements and Mm -hmm. on the whole variety of dimensions in that society. And that should be enough. Even if it so happened that there would have been no violence. Mm-hmm. Which, if there is no violence, of course, we can never definitely determine. By showing that there have been these positive changes in a society, that makes it likely that we prevented something, but it also shows that beneficial and positive things happened as a result of whatever actions have been taken. Well, that seems like a a, a good point, maybe, to, to break from this discussion. We've taken a lot of your time, and we really appreciated this. And I'll just add as, as a note to the listeners, it's it's really a wonderful book. And it's, as I said at the beginning, it's far richer and, and more thought-provoking than we can ever hope to encompass in, a, in, in, in an interview that's 50 minutes or an hour or whatever it is. But so I encourage you to go out and, and, and to read it. So, Irvin, I just have the last couple questions for you. And and one is, well, actually, I'm going to make it three. And so I'd like to come back to the kind of biographical beginning. What kind of, so, so, so you had a childhood 
where you experienced violence. Um, what kind of impact has studying violence had on on you personally? Well, I think that that had a clear, absolute, and definite impact on my studying helping and altruism. Mm -hmm. And by me becoming interested in active bystandership, which is just another form of people helping, but it's broader in the sense that active bystandership can be attempts to improve society, to resist violence, and so on. So there was a clear, definite connection there in terms of my motivation. I didn't learn anything substantively from my childhood experience. After all, I was six years old, and I actually also experienced communism, but still, mm -hmm. it was a source of my motivation. And from there, I think things have evolved. I think that my, my early work, I got ready emotionally to move from studying helping to studying harm doing. And from there, I moved to also engaging with the experience of people who have been victimized, and also people who have perpetrated violence. And, you know, I am coming full circle because hmm. this last book, The Roots of Goodness, mm -hmm. I want to understand how we can foster goodness in individuals and society so that these things will not happen. I, I, I've, I don't know. I've interviewed probably, I think, 30 people or so who, who study genocide. And one of the overwhelming responses I get is when I, when I ask a, a question about what, how, how has their disciplinary interest or their subject interest impacted their lives, and I overwhelmingly get answers like, oh, it has made me d doubtful about human nature or it's made me uh sad or it's often hard to hard to kind of come to grips with is it fair to say what i hear you saying and, and i'm just kind of thinking out loud a little bit here what i hear you saying is that the focus on prevention actually prevents some of that cynicism or depression or or skepticism well i must say that i had my share of that too <laughs> uh, uh especially after you know working many years and then looking around the world and seeing how yeah. the world is, uh, one thing that helped me to some extent is to get directly involved mm. rather than just, you know, conceptualizing things and reading and understanding and so on, to actually getting involved on a more direct interpersonal way to try to make a difference. So being in Rwanda and encountering people who have suffered greatly in spite of the fact that that can create vicarious pain and distress in a person and mm -hmm. vicarious trauma, mm -hmm. still that somehow for me had a positive element. You know, it was helpful to try to help people and help conditions where I saw actual human beings mm -hmm. uh, engaging with these matters, with the impact of the violence on them, and many of them trying to make a difference themselves. Mm -hmm. Many of these survivors of the genocide are working on reconciliation and are working on healing and, and, and are ambitious of getting an education and go ahead in their lives. 
uh, often in a constructive way. So that was helpful to me. I think it also helps some that I also work on understanding the roots of helping and caring and to promote yep. these things. You know, mm-hmm. over times, uh, I worked with teachers on creating caring classrooms. You talk about positive things of how you can create it. But having said all that, nonetheless, there are these other elements, you know, there's other elements of really pain at what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, for people interested in going further, I'm curious, who, do you have a book or, or maybe two that you would suggest everybody should read? Well, you know, one book that had a strong influence on me early on was a book by Helen Fine, mm-hmm. Accounting for Genocide. It also has a long subtitle. But this book is a very good book, and it looked like it looked at the different countries in Europe and why more Jews were killed in some and less in others. And he looked at pre-existing anti-Semitism and pre-existing structures and so on, and, uh, and uh, analyzed that very carefully. So that, that was a book that, it's an old book, and we often ignore what is old, but <laughs> I don't think, I think we do that at our own peril, so to speak, because then we just recreate uh, what is already known. So I, I would recommend I would recommend that book to everybody to look at. Excellent. Well, our last kind of traditional last question here then is, and you've already mentioned the book that's that's coming out soon. Um, so, so what are you working on now? Well, that book was just finished. Actually, okay. I mean the last finishing touches. It's going to be published in March by Oxford mm-hmm. University Press again. And uh, I don't know. I am. You know, I am thinking, I don't know if I'm going to do this, but I'm thinking of writing some blogs about the nature of the world, uh, Mm -hmm. where we are in. I'm going to write perhaps some blogs about what are the problems, which are many, that we have in America, and what, how might we possibly address them. And one reason for this, in terms of the world in general, is that if the United States became both an active leader and a model for positive action, it could make such a difference in the world. And so, to an end, while there is action here and there, the action mostly, the, the huge amount of action is in the many commentators. And I actually have some ambivalence in joining commentators. <laughs> <laughs> but that is one way, perhaps, to be an active bystander within this country. Uh, so that's one thing that I'm doing. And, and beyond that, you know, it's the first time in many years that I am actually rethinking of where I am going next and what I am doing hmm. next. Uh, but uh, I am likely to be doing more. Excellent. 
Well, I look forward to reading those, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. And so I want to end this by saying thank you so much again. Uh, and I trust that many of our listeners will go off and will read the book and, and, and will be maybe inspired to become active bystanders. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care. So welcome back, listeners. Uh, as before, this is Kelly McFall, and as I mentioned in the introduction, there, there's a coda to this interview. Um, Irvin and I taped the original part of this interview a couple days ago, and he emailed me uh, uh, talking about some additional things he's planning on doing, and he and I uh, had exchanges of emails, and we decided that that the stuff he's doing is really kind of interesting and well worth uh, him talking about. So we're going to talk about that very briefly here for the next five or 10 minutes. Um, and so Irvin, welcome back. And, and let me just start out by asking you, how, how are you using the kind of academic insights you reach from your research and how are you planning on using these um, in, in the everyday real world that we live in? Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, there are a number of ways that I am planning to and I am using some of the what I have learned from my work. Uh, one of them is that I was approached by a foundation where people are interested in using my work and what we might learn from it to address gang violence in Chicago and Kalamazoo, and maybe it can extend from there. Hmm. I am not a specialist in gang violence, but they know my work, and they thought that it would be useful to apply it. So we are going to have a three-day training with people who are working on these issues in Chicago and Kalamazoo, and I myself, in which I will describe some of the sources of violence and how violence might be transformed, and we will discuss how this may be applied to these context in which they work, and we are planning to develop a training which they then can use back in their communities, working with gang members and also involving local organizations to expand the reach of this work. So this is one way that this is already scheduled and this is going to happen and uh, we will go forward with this. Uh, I also, you know, I give various talks uh, on, in which these things are applied. Uh, I was just invited to give a keynote address in London at a conference on revenge, uh, mm. a three-day conference where there will also be a filmmaker who plans to make a film about issues of revenge. And um, I, if I decide to go, uh, I am planning to talk about what leads people to want to take revenge, but also how might transform this need for revenge through various processes that can lead to reconciliation. Uh, one of this, which is very difficult for people who have done harm to do, and about which I write at some length in Overcoming Evil, is acknowledgement of the harm that one has done or one's group has done. But there will be a variety of ways that I'll talk about this uh, as to how actually 
we may understand how the desire, the motivation to harm the other intensely because of what that other has done to us or to our group, but how that may also develop into something different. Uh, you know, the, I mentioned at the end of, of the last part of the interview that my new book is about the roots of goodness and resistance to evil, and the subtitle of it is Inclusive Caring, Moral Courage, Altruism Born of Suffering, uh, Active Bystandership, and Heroism. And I am very concerned now about how we may raise inclusively caring and morally courageous children. Hmm. You know, it's very difficult to change whole systems and relations between nations and various ethnic and racial and religious groups within societies. And I have worked on that, and that is very important. But one way to prevent future violence is to raise inclusively caring and morally courageous mm. children. And by inclusively caring, I mean children who learn to care about the welfare, who feel compassion and caring, not only for people within their own group, but also for people beyond their group, even for past enemies. And I write a little bit about this in Overcoming Evil, but much more in this new book. And this is going to be a continuing concern of mine, how we can do this. And it is not simple, because while I could specify what practices are required for this, in order for adults to engage in those practices, adults themselves have to change. Mm -hmm. They have to transform in a variety of ways. So in order to bring this about, we have to work with adults, with teachers in schools, with parents. And it is obviously uh, some long, a long-term issue, but I hope that over time I will contribute to this. <laughs> um, another thing that I will continue with is, you know, at a couple times I developed trainings for active bystandership. I mentioned briefly that I worked with police in California uh, after the Rodney King incident. I was invited to develop a training for the state of California for police training. And uh, one important element of that was how police officers who usually work in pairs can be positive active bystanders to each other. When mm -hmm. one officer begins to get heated up and engage with a civilian in a way that could lead to unnecessary violence, what can the other person do to redirect and transform the situation? Well, I developed a similar training with some associates for children in schools. When they see harassment, intimidation, negative behavior, what we nowadays call bullying in relation to other kids, how can kids engage in positive ways as much as possible uh, in order to redirect that, to stop it, to transform that situation? And I am continue, I continue to be concerned with this. In fact, as because of this kind of work that I have done, uh, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst has been engaged in a process they call You Matter that everybody at the university matters. And how can we transform and create a climate in which students and faculty feel concerned about and responsible for the welfare of other people in the community? 
And one important aspect of this is active bystandership. And active bystandership, from my perspective, not only in relation to harmful acts, sexual harassment, or some kind of abuse, but also in ways of promoting other people's welfare within one's community. So that is something that is ongoing. This You Matter program at the University of Massachusetts, a very worthwhile program, and other universities also are using active bystandership, but hmm. it's a little bit broader, wider. Uh, and finally, I want to mention altruism born of suffering. I think I may have referred to this in our earlier conversation, but this is something that I have been working on now starting uh, maybe in the early 2000 years. Uh, you know, when you go around the world and study the roots of violence in groups, in people, uh, you see that one of those roots is prior victimization and prior harm done to people, which makes them vulnerable and which makes them see the world as dangerous. And when there is new threat or when there is some other things going on, they may strike out, partly to defend themselves, even when self-defense is not necessary, and then they become perpetrators. But I, looking around the world, you know, actually this started when I developed a questionnaire for Psychology Today many years ago, the magazine Psychology Today, on values and helping. And I asked people to fill it out, send it back, and also write letters to me. And a number of people were saying that I want to help others because of the way I suffered myself earlier in my life. And then I started to look around, and I saw that a lot of people who have been victimized and suffered greatly or are members of groups that were designated to be victims of genocide or some other harm, that they go out into the world and try to prevent violence and try to help people who have suffered violence. And so I and then I and one of my students begin to study this. Uh, and yes, there are many examples of it. Yes, it happens. And I also became interested in what are the experiences that are required for people who have suffered to become altruists. Hmm. And these include while you are being victimized, somebody reaching out and trying to help you to some extent. It includes people being able to help themselves in some way. Very importantly, it includes being cared for, embraced, and supported after you have had very bad experiences hmm. and after you have suffered. And it also includes beginning to be able to help others, which further transforms the suffering into caring. So this is something that I think is very important. You know, I talked about inclusively caring and morally courageous children before, and in the past, people have studied and focused on the positive roots of caring and helping. How love and affection and guidance by positive values, a discipline that is firm but not harsh and punitive, the example of models, uh, what I call learning by doing, guiding children to participate in helpful behavior, and all of these things can lead people to become caring and helpful. But we have not studied what may be called 
the negative or painful roots of becoming caring and helpful. And that's what autism one of suffering addresses, and that is something that I plan to continue to work with. That's that's a list that will last you a long time. And so it's a great list. Can I I'd like to turn the question around. Um because I suspect you like like me and I, I imagine most people who teach about these kind of things I suspect you get the same kinds of questions that I do, which is students will pop in my office and they'll kind of look at me with with sad eyes and they'll say, you know, what can I do? What can I do? I've been studying this for a long time from an undergraduate perspective, right? They've been in the course for 10 weeks and now I'm depressed. What can I do? Is it possible for me to make a difference? So, So what would you tell a student? in that, who, who, who's sitting in your office asking you that question? Well, I have gotten that question fairly often after talks I give. Mm. You know, people mm-hmm. come up to me, and it's interesting. It used to be more older people who may have been retired, may have more time on their hands. But anyway, people come up to me and ask, what do I do? Look at all the things going on in the world. And it's a very legitimate question. And my answer used to be, (laughs) and it becomes more difficult now because of the number of crises in the world, but my answer used to be that you do two things. One is that you find some realm that speaks to your heart and you engage in that realm. You try to do things. If it is you know, trying to help poor children, uh, if it is trying to help the homeless, if it is, you know, something else, you engage in that round and join organizations or initiate actions or you talk to your neighbors and join with them and find allies to work with you together. That's one. And the other one is you look at crises. You look at really bad things that are happening in the world. And you say, okay, I must engage with that. So, you know, now we have so many crises, but there is extreme violence directed at civilians by the government of Sudan in a number of regions of Sudan, the Nuba Mountains, Nuba Mountains, and other places. So, yes, there is the violence in um, Syria, but it's very difficult to do anything about the violence in Syria because it is so multifaceted and complicated. But it is not so complicated in the Sudan. And not only is the government violent against citizens, but then when there are huge numbers of refugees, they don't allow humanitarian aid in the form of food to get to them. So people are starving. And our government is not doing anything. So find a cry at, at least one crisis realm if you don't have energy for more and try to address that and try to influence our government and legislators and, and, and people and even citizens. You know, a genocide scholar recently uh, asking for donations from other genocide scholars and getting them and then went himself and developed several tons of food to that region. So people can do amazing things on their own. And I would suggest a third domain, and that is something that I touched on when I said that I'm going to write blogs addressing 
the problems in America and considering what might we do about them. And that is, if we, the United States, come to function better in a number of ways, that can provide such positive role models and leadership in the world that it would make a real difference. So that third domain, I would say, is engage with issues within the United States. Try to think about our dysfunctional political system and see what little you can do. And again, one way to do things is to begin to talk to neighbors and go some, to some organizations where there are like-minded people and hear what they are doing and put in your ideas and in your religious community talk about these issues and try to generate active bystandership in various business organizations at their meetings talk about these issues and try to generate active bystandership so again three domains I am identifying one something that's close to your heart and other is at least one current crisis and then trying to influence our government in positive ways well, Irvin, those sound like wide, wise words, a good answer I wish I could give and a, and a challenge to our listeners. So so we've taken, again, uh, more of your time than I really planned, but thanks for coming back. And I look forward to your new work and best of luck on all of your projects. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate this conversation and, uh, I, well, thanks for doing, for doing these podcasts. All right. Thanks again. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Irvin Staub about his book, Overcoming Evil, Genocide, Violent Conflict, and Terrorism. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Abdul Wahab Al-Effendi about his edited collection of essays entitled Genocidal Nightmares, Narratives of Insecurity and the Logic of Mass Atrocity. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.